War Against the Idols, The Reformation of Worship from Erasmus to Calvin by Carlos M. N. Ear. The footnotes from this reading are in the book but are left out of this reading. Zwingli's War Against the Idols One of the more significant contributions made by Zwingli to the Reformation debate over idolatry was his analysis of the psychological roots of false worship. Zwingli asserts that the cause of error in religion is man's dependence on created things and his penchant for placing trust in them. In outlining this tendency, Zwingli differentiates between the creation of inner and outer idols. The internal manifestation of false worship is what Zwingli calls an abgot, or strange god. This word is used to describe anything in man's inner life that displaces God as an object of faith, be it money, glory, or another deity. Zwingli delves into the psychology of idolatry a bit further. He asserts that as man becomes more conscious of his reliance on these strange gods, he inevitably tries to give them some specific form. The mental process, then, undergoes materialization as a result of man's need to comprehend reality through material means. What the mind of man grasps, he says, is always made into an image. Since man is by nature materially inclined, therefore, quote, there is no one who, as soon as he hears God spoken of, or any other thing which he has not already seen, does not picture a form for himself, unquote. Since the externalization of the inner gods is inevitable, every strange god finds expression in a psychological idol sooner or later. The idol, then, is defined by Zwingli as a portrait of a strange god that already existed in man's heart. The Gotsen are the end result of a human process of invention, for as he says, quote, the strange god always comes before the idols. Unquote. The core of Zwingli's theology of idolatry is his opposition to any objects of faith, inner or outer, that usurp the place of God in worship. This principle is used in the answer to Valentine Kompar, but it is perhaps most clearly set forth in the commentary on true and false religion, which is a long and detailed exposition of this issue. In the commentary, Zwingli says that true religion or piety, quote, is that which clings to the one and only God, unquote. This principle is the foundation of the Reformed interpretation of worship. Quote, nothing therefore of ours is to be added to the word of God and nothing taken from his word by rashness of ours, unquote. This dictum is based on an antithesis between creature and creator, between the spiritual world of God and the material world of man. The things of earth, says Wingley, are carnal, and carnal things are enmity against God. The distinction between true and false worship hinges on man's attitude toward his creator and the rest of creation. Quote, it is, therefore, very easy to distinguish false religion from true. It is false religion or piety when trust is put in any other than God. They, then, who trust in any created thing whatsoever are not truly pious. Unquote. Later, in his short exposition of the Christian faith, 1531, Zwingli would refer to this principle as the fountainhead of religion and the first foundation of faith. Calvin's War Against the Idols Calvin speaks about the nature of worship and about the seriousness of the sin of idolatry in his 1543 treatise on the necessity of reforming the church, where he concentrates on the significance of worship for the Christian religion. Calvin's argument, as indicated by the title of the treatise, is that the church had reached such a corrupt state that its reform could wait no longer. The most significant aspect of corruption singled out by Calvin is the perversion of worship, and it is in explaining this issue that he set forth the basis for his attack on idolatry. 
Calvin begins by studying the place that worship holds in the Christian faith, and he concludes that it is one of the two elements that define Christianity. Quote, If it be asked, then, by what things chiefly the Christian religion has a standing amongst us, and maintains its truth, it will be found that the following two not only occupy the principal place, but comprehend under them all the other parts, and consequently the whole substance of Christianity, viz., a knowledge first of the right way to worship God, and secondly of the source from which salvation is to be sought. When these are kept out of view, though we may glory in the name of Christians, our profession is empty and vain." Unquote. Calvin thus asserts that one cannot be a Christian without a proper knowledge of worship, and even places worship before salvation in order of cognitive importance. Correct worship not only precedes righteousness, it precedes the true knowledge of salvation. It is because he believes worship to be the foundation of theology that Calvin can answer one of the more frequent charges made against Protestantism by the Roman Catholic Church. The Catholics accused the Protestants of raising disputes that were of little significance, needlessly causing a schism. Calvin responds by saying, on the contrary, that disputes over points of worship should be given precedence over all other aspects of religion. Commenting further on the dispute over worship that divided Christendom, Calvin asserts that it is not an insignificant struggle at all, but rather a life-and-death combat over what is most essential to the Christian life. Quote, For it is not true that we dispute about a worthless shadow. The whole substance of the Christian religion is brought into question. Unquote. Calvin uses equally strong language when he exhorts all Christians to assume their primary duty, that is, to struggle for the maintenance of pure worship. Quote, there is nothing to which all men should pay more attention, nothing in which God wishes us to exhibit a more intense eagerness, than in endeavoring that the glory of his name may remain undiminished, his kingdom be advanced, and the pure doctrine which alone can guide us to true worship flourish in full strength." Unquote. Calvin ridicules Catholics for saying that Protestants are only concerned with trifles. When the pagan idolaters spoke of fighting for their altars and sacred hearths, says Calvin, they supported what they believed to be the noblest of all causes. Catholics, though also idolaters, are so confused about the nature of their worship that they regard as almost superfluous a contest that is undertaken, quote, for the glory of God and the salvation of men, unquote. Calvin thus points to the contradiction in Catholic polemics. The Catholics cling tenaciously to their forms of worship, yet also try to minimize the effect of the Protestant attack by arguing that only trivial matters have been brought into question. The seriousness of their corruption, Calvin adds, is evident in their failure to see that worship is the soul of the Christian life. Idolatry, then, is the very antithesis of religion. The Imperative for Spiritual Worship Calvin maintains that the only correct form of worship that can be offered to God is spiritual worship, which for him means two things worship devoid of trust in material props or humanly devised ceremonies, and worship that has been commanded by God. Calvin's second dictum concerning spiritual worship states that God is to be honored only according to his commands in Scripture. It is at this point that Calvin uses his hermeneutic of transcendence to attack Catholic worship. Calvin assails the established piety as something that had no sanction from the word of God and was thoroughly corrupt. Not once does Calvin waver in regard to his interpretation of what Scripture means by spiritual worship. The Word of God is clear, he says, and as the rule that distinguishes between false and true worship, it has a universal and univocal application. God's commands stand inscribed in the pages of the Bible as an unchanging rule that man must never alter in any way. Quote, Here indeed is pure and real religion. 
faith so joined with an earnest fear of God that this fear also embraces willing reverence and carries with it such legitimate worship as is prescribed in the law. Unquote. Worship, the central concern of Christians. Calvin defines the place of worship as none of his predecessors had done before. Though they had struggled against idolatry, their theology was somewhat fundamentalistic and more inclined towards action than systematic exposition. Calvin clears whatever doubt anyone could have had about the theological foundations of the Reformed struggle for pure worship. Calvin states plainly that the war against idolatry is not merely blind obedience to Scripture, but also something reasonable. Worship, he says, is the central concern of Christians. It is not some peripheral matter, but the whole substance of the Christian faith. It is the reason for human existence, the fundamental principle that alone can bring true cognitio to human beings, and therefore true fulfillment, since the proper end of human existence is knowledge of God and of ourselves. By making worship a necessary existential component of knowledge, Calvin turns it into the nexus between thought and action, between theology and its practical application. It is a very practical sort of theology that Calvin develops as a result of this. Religion is not merely a set of doctrines, but rather a way of worshipping and a way of living. Quote, true piety begets true confession, unquote. This is enormously significant. One may even argue that it becomes the fundamental defining characteristic of Calvinism. Calvin's Struggle The Reformation for which Calvin struggled was not so much one of doctrine, but rather one of piety, which involved profound social and cultural changes. Calvin considered the struggle against idolatry to be an unending task, and thought that the situation of the 16th century evangelicals paralleled that of the ancient Israelites. They were the chosen few surrounded by peoples immersed in idolatry and superstition. Like their Old Testament forebears, 16th century Reformed Christians had to be prepared to deal with the contagion of idolatry. Even in a Reformed community, Calvin insisted, it was necessary to speak to the faithful about the corruption around them, lest they become complacent. As had been the case with the Israelites, purity of worship was expected to be the primary response to the covenant between God and his people. And for Calvin, the true Christian church always had to be reminded of the fact that it had been rescued from idolatry. This means, of course, that Calvin regarded the church as a sort of real, spiritual nationhood, and that he expected commitment to the purity of the covenant to eclipse any allegiances that opposed it, even if these allegiances were demanded by one's earthly nation. This is the conflict presented to 16th century Reformed Protestants by Calvin. Regarding worship, they had to choose between the demands of earthly kingdoms and the responsibilities of the spiritual kingdom of God. Calvin's struggle against Nicodemism is the logical conclusion of his effort to avoid compromise with the worship of the Roman Catholic Church. Calvin proposes a model form of conduct for all Christians, and he describes his opinion in detail as he deals with each of the problems raised by the dissembling behavior of the Nicodemites. Calvin's principal dictum in regard to the Christian's relationship with false religion is that idolatry must be shunned at all costs, even at the risk of one's life. For as he says, the first lesson one should learn in the school of Jesus Christ is the renunciation of self. But what specifically is the individual living in a predominantly Catholic environment supposed to do if there is to be no compromise with Rome? How is all this theology to be brought to life in the harsh, practical world of politics? Calvin offers two alternatives to those who, as he says, are living in Babylon and cannot worship God correctly in public. The first is to emigrate. One can leave behind all corruption and seek a new location, such as Geneva, where true worship can take place. For those who find it impossible to flee, and Calvin grants that there are some for whom emigration is out of the question, the second alternative is to abstain from all idolatry. 
to remain, quote, pure and immaculate before God, in soul as well as in body, unquote, even under duress. Calvin and the Question of Exile In 1550, Calvin proudly wrote to Melanchthon, quote, Many, in order to avoid idolatry, are fleeing France and are coming to us in voluntary exile, unquote. Calvin often refers to idolatry as if it were a plague. Once an area becomes infected with this virus, the only way the residents can escape contagion is by fleeing. Those who remain behind, surrounded by the disease, risk infection every day as long as they come into contact with its victims. Calvin was aware that not everyone was free to emigrate, but he continually stressed that for those who found it possible, it was the wisest course to follow. Quote, now consider whether you can have peace with God in your own conscience while you persevere in your present state. We have no direct revelation commanding us to leave the country, but since we have the commandment to honor God in body and soul, wherever we may be, what else could we do? It is certainly to us, then, that these words are also addressed. Quote, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, unquote, Genesis 12.1. As long as we are there constrained to act against our conscience and cannot live for the glory of God, unquote. Calvin adds that one should regard as filth and dung everything that hinders one from being a good Christian. If anything separates one from God, who is the true life, then it can only lead to death. Calvin called on the faithful to relinquish everything for the sake of pure worship, including one's native land. If one's country was opposed to the true worship of God, Calvin told his followers, then one should be ready to regard it as a foreign land. Recalling the words, quote, How shall we sing of the Lord in a strange land? Unquote, Psalm 37. Calvin argues that the true Christian can never be at home in any land that forbids true worship. Quote, I admit that the kingdom of God is now everywhere, and that there is no longer any distinction between Judea and other lands. But I say, nevertheless, that any country where the worship of God is abolished and his religion is annihilated well deserves to be regarded as foreign and profane. Unquote. This is a clear, forceful expression of Calvin's theological vision, a testimony to his conviction that true religion is the true nation of the Christian. Some Protestants, however, regarded these sentiments as improper or even seditious, and they argued that emigration was an act of treason. Calvin denied this vigorously, saying that emigration could not be regarded an act of desertion or treason if the objective of the emigrant were to escape idolatry. After all, it was not a question of going over to an enemy country in order to join forces against one's king and country, said Calvin, but rather of merely seeking a place to worship God purely and in peace. Calvin wanted to leave no doubt in anyone's mind that this was most correct, and he goes as far as to say that princes who deny their subjects the right to worship God as God has commanded should expect to be deserted by them. Calvin's opposition to compromise and his call to exile stem not only from his fear of the contagion of idolatry, but also from his ecclesiological doctrine. For Calvin, the visible church played a central role in Christian worship and in the controversy over compromise. In fact, the true nationalism of Christians was never something disembodied for Calvin. It was never merely an adherence to a certain kind of worship, but rather adherence to a certain social group, the true Christian church. The visible church was not the perfect church of God, it did not consist exclusively of God's elect, but it still offered a great assistance to the faithful. Calvin maintained that there were great benefits to be derived from belonging to a community devoted to the pure worship of God, insisting that it is very beneficial to be able to worship freely, openly confess one's faith, pray, hear the word preached, and participate in the sacraments established by God. Calvin stresses the importance of the worshiping community against the dissemblers who scoff at his call to exile. Those who think they can do without the church, he says, know very little about the faith they claim to follow. 
Although God has done away with the earthly temple of the Jews and the organized priesthood of Aaron, there is still a divinely ordained need for organized worship. This need is met by the Church. Quote, I admit that there is no more material temple where it is necessary to go on pilgrimage to sacrifice to God, since we are now the spiritual temples and ought everywhere to raise our pure hands to heaven. However, the command to invoke his name in the company of the faithful endures forever. Because this is not one of the figures of the Old Testament, but is a command which our Lord Jesus has given until the end of the world. It is certainly true that we are no longer like little children held under the tutelage of the law of Moses, but we are still men and will continue to be men until God takes us from the world. Unquote. The ecclesiological element of Calvin's call to exile is clearly established in this passage. Humanity is always in need of organized religion. Although the shadows and figures of David's time have passed, Christians are still called to participate in public common worship, in the preaching of the word, and in the partaking of the sacraments. This is not always possible in an idolatrous land such as France, where the faithful are persecuted. Calvin adds that there is no choice in this matter, that Christians are required to use the aids that God has given them in the church, and that if these aids are not used, one has fewer excuses before God. This means, of course, that in cases where one has to choose between membership in the visible new Israel of the church and citizenship in an idolatrous nation, preference is to be given to God's kingdom. To this extent, then, the visible church becomes a nation for Calvin in that the ultimate allegiance required of all Christians, regardless of their place of birth, lies with God and his commandments, not with princes and their laws. And God is quite visible, making himself manifest in the church. Quote, when God represents himself according to his good wishes and gives us marks and signs so he can be known by us, then it is as if he took a face. Unquote. Steadfastness, the other alternative. Those who cannot emigrate and thus remain behind in Egypt and Babylon are not promised an easy life by Calvin who persistently calls upon all the faithful to assume an uncompromising stance. Quote, See that you take courage to separate yourselves from idolatry and from all superstitions which are contrary to the service of God and to the acknowledgement and confession which all Christians owe to him, for to that we are called. Unquote. This doctrine of strict separation includes, as is to be expected, the possibility of having to suffer trials, incarcerations, and even martyrdom. In fact, Calvin published a sermon devoted entirely to the subject of martyrdom. Calvin's message could not help but be disruptive to society. While he admonishes the individual to keep his faith to himself and avoid confrontation, Calvin also tells him he should burn with zeal for the pure worship of God. By calling on his followers to withdraw from the customs of their society and to abhor these practices with zeal, Calvin helped create an explosive situation, especially when one considers that confession became a special Calvinist trait. For Calvinists, confession was a socially oriented concern that transcended whatever personal fulfillment any individual might find in the Fides that was at the heart of the Protestant message. This impulse to offer witness publicly was rooted in Calvin's ecclesiology, particularly in his notion of the visible church as God's instrument of election, but was further intensified by the need to combat Nicodemism. As we have seen, Calvin would admit no separation between private belief and public behavior, and this principle of confessional integrity went beyond mere passivity. It also called for an aggressive public rejection of the many social norms that supported idolatry. To accept the Calvinist credo, body and soul, was to become an agent of change. More specifically, it meant becoming a promoter of iconoclasm, even if indirectly. As one Huguenot pamphleteer put it in 1561, shortly before the outbreak of war, quote, Confession is demonstrating publicly that you consent in no way to idolatry, and communicating to others the same doctrine that you embrace, unquote. 
As might be expected, Calvin met with some resistance, but he stood firm. When Fumé reported that many in France thought his assertions were thoroughly wretched, Calvin replied by saying that his admonitions were not something he had dreamed up in some shady nook, but rather something that had always been demanded of Christians, the very same principles for which the martyrs of old had died. If Christians in the past were willing to suffer horrible tortures in order to avoid idolatry, asks Calvin, why should his fellow Frenchmen act any differently? Calvin refused to give in to criticism. He was convinced of the truth and could not bring himself, quote, to call that which is white black, unquote, to ease anyone's conscience. He distanced himself from his advice by saying that it was not really Calvin's opinion, but the very truth of God. This article, edited by Reg Barrow, is taken from the book War Against the Idols, The Reformation of Worship from Erasmus to Calvin by Carlos M. N. Heer. Copyright, Cambridge University Press, 1986. Used with permission of Cambridge University Press. The article is taken from the following pages of the book. Pages 84 to 85, 198 to 202, 232 to 233, 255 to 256, 259 to 260, 260 to 267, and page 270. Appendix, Idolatry and the First Commandment, by Thomas Boston. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3. I shall now shut up all with the consideration of these words before me. These words before me in the First Commandment teach us that God who seeth all things taketh special notice of and is much displeased with the sin of having any other god. First, God taketh special notice of the sin of having any other god. One, he taketh special notice of the gross sin of idolatry. He has a jealous eye on it, and will not overlook it, for it is spiritual adultery. And the husband will overlook many faults in his wife, who will not overlook that. Idolaters have their fig-leaf covers for their idolatry. How do the papists set their wits on the rack to frame such nice and subtle distinctions as may palliate their horrid idolatry? But though they may deceive the simple with these things, yet they cannot blind the eyes of the all-seeing God. Seeing God takes such notice of it, how lamentable is it that idolatry makes such vast progress in this covenanted land and is not duly noticed? How sad is it that the sin and dishonor against God is not noticed, so as to be mourned over and to take notice of it to repress it? This is a sad sign of the danger of being overrun with it. 2. God takes special notice of heart idolatry, of whatever possesseth his room in the heart. That is a subtle kind of idolatry, so hid that others cannot, nay, men themselves do not always perceive what it is that is their idol. But God sees it very well. 1. The idol may be of a spiritual nature, which the man cannot discern till the law be carried home on the soul in its spiritual extent. Thus Paul's duties and seeming holiness were his idol. Romans 7, verse 9. 2. It may lie in lawful things. Things unlawful in themselves may quickly be seen with the snare in them. It is easy to discern the devil when he appears with his cloven foot, so to speak, but it is not so easy to see a man's ruin lying in houses and lands, husband, wife, and children, goods and gear, yet these may be the idols. 3. The idol may go under the name of an infirmity. Thus many deceive themselves with entertaining reigning sins under the name of infirmities. 4. Self-love acts, its part here, being ready to magnify men's good and extenuate their evil. And so they nourish their disease and hug the viper that is gnawing at their bowels. 5. There may be a judicial stroke in it, 
They will not entertain the discoveries which God makes them, and they shutting their eyes, the Lord strikes them blind. Secondly, God is specially displeased with our having any other God. 1. He is displeased with gross idolatry. He shows his special wrath in this life against idolaters, as against the Israelites for worshipping the golden calf, and against the ten tribes for their idolatry at Dan and Bethel. So old Babylon was, and new Babylon will be destroyed. All idolaters will be punished in the other life. Revelation 21.8 Let us then show our displeasure against and resolve in the Lord's strength to oppose the spreading of idolatry, choosing rather to suffer than sin. 2. He is displeased with the idols which men set up in their hearts. He shows his displeasure several ways. 1. Sometimes the Lord, in the fury of his jealousy, forces the idol out of the way, as he did in the case of Micah's idol, Judges 18.24. 2. Sometimes he reduces the man to a necessity of parting either with his idol or his profession. 3. Oft times the Lord makes the idol man's plague and punishment. 4. Lastly, oft times there is a rub by a torrent of temptations that brings forth the idol in its own colors, as in the case of Judas's covetousness and Dima's love of the world. Let us therefore cast away our idols, and let nothing keep God's room in our hearts, especially in such a day when God is rising up to plead against us. From the whole ye may see that the commandment is exceeding broad. Be humbled under the sense of your guilt in the breach of this command, and see what great need ye have to reform, and what need ye stand in of the blood of Christ for removing your guilt, and of his Spirit for cleansing your hearts and subduing your iniquities. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. 1 John 5.21 This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God, For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. 
It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.